it's it's so fucking weird that I get you and you and uh, you know Blag within a couple week period. Oh, yeah. Under vastly dissimilar circumstances, mind so, you. Where was he? Was on the road? I'm guessing. Uh, he he may have been. It looked like he was at home, but I, I wouldn't I wouldn't know what his home looks like. He looked comfortable, and there were records behind him. Oh, that's that's his home. Yeah, that's the same. That's uh, what we called the Hardtail Hotel. <laughs> it's the old dwarves' house. It's a lot of a lot of disturbing things happen in that house. Uh, anything disturbing, spiritual or just carnal? Carnal, carnal. The spiritual stuff didn't happen until uh, years later for me, anyway. Which I find interesting because, you know, for the most of the people I know who are uh, inclined of the left-hand path, kind of grew up in circumstances where the spiritual kind of was around them. Like myself, mm. I I grew up in a home that was very active, mm. to put it very bluntly. Uh, in what? Uh, I thought it was, uh, I thought I had uh, a friend, you know what I'm saying? I thought I had an imaginary friend. His name oh. was Bart, and it, this was not an imaginary individual uh, right, right, right. at all. And that kind of got me in, interested, at least in, you know, the left-hand path. Uh, mm. I, I landed on Gnosticism. 35 oh, yeah. years later. Yeah, um, that's great. Gnosticism is fantastic. It's, uh, you know, the most open spirituality I could possibly come across without, mm -hmm. because it's, it's not didactic. I mean, not fully. Mm -hmm. anyway. Right. Right. I'm, unless you're following like the Valentinians or, or, or right. any different schools. But to me, Gnosticism is as free as you're going to get. Even when I joined, uh, the church of Satan in 1994, it was a different beast back then. You could be into Gnosticism and still be in the Church of Satan, and there's oh, no sure, sure. They didn't butt heads. Um, then things after, yeah, Doctor Levey passed away. Things changed dramatically. Yeah, well, as my uh, buddy Boyd Rice said, it was. I mean, it was really his organization. And once the head is gone, then there the body dies, and uh, the body has died. <laughs> yeah. I can't even look at it anymore. It's yeah. Horrible. Uh, yeah, Boyd, I mean, I, I I had an imaginary friend too when I was a kid, but uh, it it wasn't any. I mean, it was never anything that spoke with me. But it really wasn't until I mean, when I started performing, as I talk about in the new book, when I started performing um, those Crowley rituals, um, it took a few years, and then I do um, eighth degree sex magic, which is masturbatory sex magic, mm -hmm. and I did it constantly the sex magic and the the rituals every single day in Atlanta, in Atlanta, Georgia, I had this huge living room and I was able to do Mark of the Beast ritual and star Ruby. And, um, it puts, it starts putting through ordeals. If you enter the 93 current, which is the Crowley and Thelemic path. And boy, I went through some ordeals. Uh, and then what pulled me out of it was, was meeting, um, the love of my life on, on the internet, uh, which I mentioned in the book. And um, because I loved and respected her so much, you know, I, after going through a few trials and tribulations, I decided I'm never going to drink again. If I, this woman is it. This is who I'm supposed to be with, my soulmate, for lack of a better word. So um, ever since then, um, well, things started happening before I decided to sober up, but it really started kicking in once I did. 
which you'd think would be the other way around if it was all just, you know, aspect of hallucination or my own imagination. But uh, we definitely contacted entities and the things that started occurring around us, especially around her, was was phenomenal. And um, I've always been a thelemite. I've been a thelemite ever since I think I was 16 and I went to a record store in my hometown of Mill Valley, California, and there was an interview with uh, Psychic TV. Mm -hmm. And there was a picture of Aleister Crowley. And something in me went, what the fuck? Like, what is this? And uh, it just touched me. I mean, this, I'm sure if Crowley had been alive, he would like to have touched me too. Yeah, but, absolutely. <laughs> uh, you know, it, it touched me and it was like, really strangely, like I, I had no idea who this was. So I immediately went to the Mill Valley Library and found various books on, by Crowley. And then um, went to City Lights Bookstore in San Francisco and found Magic and Theory in Practice. I didn't understand a fucking word of it. And that's what a lot of people say, like Michael Staley, who was Kenneth Grant's right-hand man or left-hand path man. Yeah. He too told me he didn't understand a damn thing. And a lot of other people, you just don't understand. It's almost like you have to go through certain ordeals and trainings or whatnot if you're really serious to get to the place where it just all makes sense. And then it just, then it just makes perfect sense. But it, it takes a while, that's for sure. But, I mean, obviously, I think Thelema is, a, is another element. Uh, it's a new Gnosticism. And we really did write the Gnostic Mass. Um, but that, that's what's great about Gnosticism is it's just so um, open-ended. It really leaves it up to you to see what touches you the most. You decide what's most important to you and how you're going to proceed. But the Gnostics are amazing. I've been reading... A, um, Started reading all the books by Tobias Churton. Yeah. He's he's incredible. Um, for a Thelemite, he's um, solid gold. I mean, he's written five or six books on Crowley and so many different, covering so many different areas of Crowley's life. There's the first one, spiritual biography that he wrote, or just Alistair Crowley, the biography. And that goes through the um, the overall look of Crowley's life and his work. But then he's got all these other books, which are amazing. But I, I can't, for some reason, I can't really dive into somebody unless I read one thing by them that really touches me. And I read his The Gnostic Philosophy. Mm -hmm. Amazing book. Absolutely. If you haven't read it yet. That was my first That was my first one, actually. Oh, yeah. No, it's yeah, fantastic. I, I started so he, that. He, yeah. So he, he really inspired me uh, just, uh, just recently. And I've also recently decided I've got to crack the code of William Blake. Oh. So, um, Churton wrote a book on, um, William Blake. I believe it's called Jerusalem, which I'm going to read next after I'm done with the Crowley book. But, um, once you have experiences like I've had in the last 10 years, you realize this shit's real. Hmm. I mean, I always knew it was like my instincts always told me there are preternatural intelligences. There are other things going on. There are more subtle energies and, and, places that you can contact um but um i always knew it but once i started uh being with who i call km in the book um once we got together and she started having experiences and then i i was a little hesitant because i was thinking as i say in the book this could be some somebody put up to like do a put-up job on me to freak me out somebody Put this girl up to this because maybe i banged his girlfriend back in 92 in the back of the dwarves van or something i didn't know 
But then I got hit with that, what I describe in the book, the Kundalini experience in Denver. And uh, that, um, there was no doubting that. (laughs) Some real shit right there. And ever since then, uh, you know, it's, it's, I I haven't questioned it for a second. I know that these things exist. And uh, it's been, it's been phenomenal because what's so great is it, it confirmed all of my instincts and intuition ever since I was 16. Yeah, and I think that's where a lot of us, uh, we find it in our youth. I mean, I I became obsessed with Crowley when I was, I was probably 12, just coming across different books that my father had had because he was sure. into, he was into strange stuff too. He's a really cool Vietnam vet, way off his rocker. I miss him dearly, yeah. but, you know. Uh, right, right. Vietnam vets are like that. They're, they saw hell, they bring it home. Oh, yes. Oh, yes, they have. But something about, uh, you know, the occult, really, uh, for a, a, a Roman Catholic, it just mystified my old man. And, and mm. you know, I inherited that from him. It just mm. so happened I inherited a lot of other things, too, from him. Mm-hmm. The, the drug and alcohol gene. Mm-hmm. And uh, whatever energy was around him that kind of followed him, I inherited that, too. And that's what sure. really kind of honed my uh my attraction to it mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know and I, I never get to talk about this shit the only other time i've ever gotten even touch upon it is uh when my friend adele pseudo came on uh and he's he's basically a gnostic as well but i i think uh people who are into thelema or gnosticism are so far and few between because it is it lacks that uh that ceremony and didacticism that church uh proper even the church of satan has four people because th- mm-hmm. then they're joiners then they, they there's fellowship and mm-hmm. this it's almost a lone wolf's dance and that's sort of how i, I and that's one reason why i like it so much and Me i too. you know i know thelema is much more popular and much it's become much larger than ever before i mean the 93 current is clearly kicking into overdrive on many different fronts but there are more people into Crowley and thelema than there ever have been but it's interesting, yeah. I mean, I, I always hated the herd. I could never stand them. You know, once I started reading Nietzsche at an early age, I'm like, oh my God, this is me and the outsider by Colin Wilson at a young age. And when I was 12, I was like learning how to type because uh, I wanted to be Hunter S. Thompson. <laughs> that made my mother nervous. That made my mother nervous. But um it's 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 such a process that it's taken me into places like, uh, like over the last couple of years, I've, I've delved deeply into Buddhism, like deep into it. And, um, to the point where I almost just rejected the Lima, hmm. but I realized what I was doing. I had the do what thou wilt thing down. No problem. It was the love under law. Love is the law. Love under will. It was mm-hmm. the love part that, I was really having a hard time with because I'd really just been an angry, pissed off son of a bitch my whole life, which is why punk rock kind of, you know, saved me. Yeah. But uh, I had to go deep into Buddhism for the last two or three years to try and touch that love part, the compassion, the love. And um, I've just always been such a misanthrope. Boyd Rice certainly helped, you know, open that up for me at an early age. Well, in my 20s, when he came out with music, martinis and misanthropy. To yeah. me, that was just the greatest. I listened to that, that record over and over and over and over. Um, but there, I there, I felt like I had reached a 
reached a, a, a brick wall in my my um, evolution with Thelema. And there was something I needed to do. And I just, and if you're really following your true will, um, you'll you'll do it no matter what. And if you don't do it, then your life starts to kind of fall apart. Well, I started going deep into Buddhism. And this is what I've done. And only recently have I kind of come to a realization that I was doing that so I could touch into that compassion and that love. Um, and it's it's worked and it really it really has. Um, but this path is the Salamic path is like that, where you have to you can't just follow others. You have to tap into your own, um, obviously your own star, your own true will, and just let it lead you where it wilt. And um, you know, Buddhism was the one thing that um you know, Crowley went through it before he had contact with Iwas. And um he uh, ended up rejecting it um, because obviously the Book of the Law came along. But he couldn't get to that place to meet his holy guardian angel or to receive the Book of the Law until he had reduced his ego enough, which he did through Buddhism, I believe, to get there so he could actually accommodate all of those things. Um, I was the Book of the Law and everything that came afterwards. So, I mean, you just, you can't, you really do have to be a lone wolf with all this, I believe. Now, but, in, order, uh, in order to meet your uh, guardian angel, though, uh, there's only, you can only do that like one of two ways through what I would call Gnosis or Diabra Melon working, if I'm not mistaken, correct? Um, no, because I, I found my true will. Um, I've never done any of the Abramelin stuff. Um, all I did was uh, every day, sometimes a few times a day, I'd meditate, which I still do every single day. I would do the um, Liber, Liber Regulus or Mark of the Beast ritual and Star Ruby together in conjunction every single day. I still do Star Ruby every single day before I meditate. And um, it was just my will, I guess, because I was opening a door and something came in and it's been been here ever since and um km still speaks to to iwas and um specific, especially when say she's in the shower it seems like running water uh is something that sort of opens her up to him but um i mean when i did dive into buddhism even he through her through her acting as a flamic oracle um she said he he's delivered a message to you and and she texted it out to me and it essentially said what, what are you doing man I mean, this is a paraphrase obviously this is not how i always talks <laughs> he's like what, what are you doing man just follow your will what are you you're just looking for comfort what, what, what do you need and so when you've got the god of the lima telling you hey, dude cut it out what the fuck is this buddhist shit you hear that and still you're like fuck you I have to do this, man. I got to go through this. I think that's the real training for, at least in Thelema, for the for somebody that's really truly going to be sort of a Thelemic Superman or whatever you want to call it. Because mm -hmm. even if you're willing to go against the God that is supposedly, you know, your mentor or what have you, if you're so willing to follow your true will, you'll you'll even risk pissing off Satan. 
then you must be truly on the path. I mean, that's sort of how I've come to see it anyway. Now, when we talk about something like Satan, I mean, in in Thelema, like in, in Gnosticism, Satan is very real. Uh, in Thelema, I'd always kind of assumed that Satan was more of a of a figurehead than anything else. Well, no, I mean, uh, he... Now, the, here's the difference between me and, and most Thelemites. I've accepted, like, my first, my only real Thelemic mentor was a guy named uh, Nemo Pandragon, who runs the site iwas.com. And uh, he was friends with a fellow named James Beck. And James Beck, it's believed, was Alistair Crowley's incarnation after Crowley died. So really, it's not actually Crowley, but Iwas inhabited this other person. So it's not really you who reincarnates, it's your angel. Mm -hmm. And so Iwas incarnated into him and he delivered for the world um, the Book of Codes um, and all, all the other books. There's a bunch of other books that are on there. Uh, Iwas.com. And uh, I started reading that about 2009 and then I started writing to the, to the gentleman Nemo Pandragon who started um, who was putting all of that up after after James Beck had passed away in 2001. Um, he decided this stuff is too important for Thelema, you know, so he put it up on his website. And um, that's really when things kind of started kicking into overdrive and started setting me up for what ended up happening later with KM. And actually um, having the Kundalini experience I had in Denver and then having her as an oracle essentially and so it says in the book i believe it's in the book of codes he iowas is speaking to james beck and says well i am satan you, you didn't know that uh, i am him if you read crowley crowley says satan isn't the satan of judeo-christianity or more like how james milton put it in his book paradise lost satan is is more a uh, lot more like Rahur Kuit. He's a sun god. Mm -hmm. um, Crowley even said that I think when he took the stand for some trial, they said, "Do you do you do you worship Satan?" He says, "No, I, I don't worship Satan. I worship the sun, because that's essentially what Satan is. He's a solar god." So I think he comes in many different forms. I, I think it's it's I think it goes back to the Yazidis. Um, I think at least everything that my Scarlet Woman has told me and what she's intuited is that this is something that's ancient, ancient, ancient. Um, he appeared in Egypt as Set. Mm -hmm. uh, he appeared in um, he appeared in Samaria as uh, Ovis. Um, he's appeared in many different forms, but he did reveal he, he revealed himself to me by giving KM. Um, all these numbers <clears throat> when we were first this is only through facebook messages and all this shit. Yeah. she said he wants me to give you these numbers and i immediately know what to do with them i don't i don't know how but i knew what to do with them so i took the numbers looked at the correspondences in the cabal of crowley's magic and theory and practice library alba and um figured out every tarot card that that letter represented and went to each tarot card in Crowley's Book of Thoth and started reading yeah. through it. And every single one 
Who has a starring walk-on for each description of each card? Set. So he was essentially saying, yeah, I'm set. So that was fascinating, and which got me then to kind of look at, like, say, the Temple of Set and shit like that. Yeah. I know. Temple of Set never impressed me. No. (laughs) But, I mean, it's kind of always been Thelema, and then um, having read all of Kenneth Grant's books, uh, you know, in the early 90s, I was spending hundreds of dollars for those fucking things. Whereas now you can get them on the internet and Michael Staley and Caroline Weiss are, you know, putting them out in paperback. God, I would have loved that back in the day. Yeah. But um, just obsessed with Kenneth Grant, just read all of his books, just over, even though I didn't understand a goddamn thing, I just read them over and over. In fact, I, I first time I, I came across him in Robert Anton Wilson's Cosmic Trigger, the name, and then when the dwarves were in New York, me and Black took some acid and we're like hanging out over by the Statue of Liberty and somewhere like off, just off to where the Statue of Liberty is, which is ironic. <laughs> and um, found a bookstore and there was Outside the Circles of Time by Kenneth Grant. And I'm like, oh, and it was only eight bucks. Eight bucks. I mean, that book went for, right now that book and that that printing would be worth probably $3,000. But I just started reading it hardly understood it and just kept uh, studying it and studying it and studying it. And then I got slow, but sure got all of his other books. And um, when I went through the last 10 years, when I've gone through everything that I did with KM and seeing say what um, menstrual uh, magic, what effect it has on a person who can actually raise their Kundalini. Mm-hmm. I, it was, that's all in Kenneth Grant's books. It's all right there. He, he talks about all of it. I'm like, Oh God, there it is. And I've been reading it, but I couldn't put it into context because I didn't see it. Right. But once KM had these experiences, I'm like, oh, <laughs> that's what it is. <laughs> and then I really started understanding why they call it the 93 current. Because it's a current of energy. Yeah. And um, it affected me, but I was around her all the time. But when, she, say, she'd go to work, people would get dizzy, they'd fall over. I mean, it was a current of energy that was affecting people, and we saw it. And, you know, she's she's a very smart, intelligent, disciplined person. and since I quit drinking, I certainly am. So all of this is not just us imagining things. This is stuff that's really happening. So so once I started having the actual experience with KM and then going back to Kenneth Grant's books and then some of Crowley's, I realized, okay, well, this is real. So now I've got to dive in even stronger than I ever did before. And that current, I mean, I've experienced it, uh, especially with uh, one person in particular many many years ago when i was in my early 20s and legitimately we we would like take energy from everyone else in the, in the room to the point where we'd be at parties and people were falling asleep oh yeah that's awesome and it's that's like a- it was it was a very palpable very tangible like feeling and she obviously didn't know what to make of it because as, she, as, as I, a misanthrope, I would have loved that. Like, let's just put everybody to sleep so we can enjoy ourselves now. It, it, and that's what it was. I mean, we ended up using it to our advantage in a in a sexual manner, obviously. <laughs> yeah, right. But there, you know, I I know that it can be tapped into, but uh, myself, with the exception of that time, I I don't believe I've ever gotten to that point again. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That singular experience with that energy. And of course, I'd I'd known there was a name for it. I was a fan of 
Crowley. I was a fan of Current 93. I knew where the name came from, so it all I put that mm -hmm. all together, but mm -hmm. never got there again. Yeah, I mean, um, I, I'm just lucky. I don't think I'm lucky. I think it was destined. I mean, I was supposed to, like in my book, I say, you know, the chapter of one book is Doom or Destiny. You decide. But um, I think it was destiny to meet her and that I was supposed to tap into all of this and because I've studied it for so long. But I really think it was doing all those rituals. And like I said, uh, a Bromelin and uh, all of that. Um, see, I, I always kind of shied away from anything that wasn't written by Crowley in terms of magic. Mm -hmm. Something intuitively just told me, why do I need to go back and do these rituals from the old eon? Yeah. You know, this is the new eon. Let's let's tap into what's what's going on now instead of trying to and I know they say, like everybody says in all of their books, you know, you really need to, um, for safety's sake or whatever, do the old eon rituals from the Golden Dawn and what have you. Yeah. And if that's how you feel, you should. That's what you should do. But I, something in me was just like, fuck that. Let's go. Let's dive right in. You know, I, I fuck safety. <laughs> I haven't yeah. lived. My whole life has been against safety. So <laughs> why not continue that, you know? And you've you've had this knack for collecting or 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 making alliances with some of the most interesting and luminary people like that I've ever experienced in my lifetime. Mm -hmm. You know, you know Peter Sotos, you, mm -hmm. you know Boyd Rice, you know these people mm -hmm. that like I greatly admire and respect. Uh, and you just found them by happenstance. Is am I am I correct in assuming that? Um, in a sense, I mean, uh, Boyd, I met, uh, when he and Hellfire Club were on tour together in San Francisco in 96. Um, and, uh, Wendy, who, uh, I worked with, uh, in, on Neither Neither World, and she also helped me on Thonic Force, my noise band. Yeah. Um, we had been putting out a magazine called Primal Chaos, and, um, I think it started moving to online at that point, which was weird for such an early time, but whatever it was. Uh, I was supposed to interview him when he showed up and I guess he had heard of the dwarves and whatnot. Um, but yeah, so, uh, when he was there, when they showed up at the, um, Trocadero transfer in San Francisco, I went down and, and met him and, uh, had my girlfriend at the time take pictures of us. I'm sure. I think that's in the book somewhere. Yeah. And, um, I took pictures and then I did the interview and we must've talked. I mean, we just talked, we got drunk and talked for hours and hours. And it just started a friendship. And then, um, then I, you know, the dwarves, I think the dwarves were in a down period. We're trying to be the Black Dahlia band. Oh, that was a horrible idea. And, but maybe us being away for a while got us to be more popular. So when the dwarves came back with the greatest record we ever made, I think, young and good looking. Oh, yeah. Um, then we just started hitting the road nonstop. And every time I was in Denver, you know, I, I knew if I went to, we played a show in Denver and I knew. If I go down to the lion's lair, which is a place Boyd used to frequent, I know I'm going to find him tonight. I think it was a Friday. Sure enough, I walk in and there he is at, 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 on his, at his booth. You know, he's spinning records and doing all this shit. And, and uh, that, that night we went off and partied. We went to some party. And, of course, I'm always looking for powder. And mm. uh, I, think we got, I think we got meth, but Boyd, is, Boyd was pretty sure we got cocaine. But... Whatever it was, we snorted it up, and then we went back to his house. And I'm like, in Boyd Rice's the bunker, you know? Yeah. Going, I'm in Boyd Rice's house. <laughs> so we just sat and got loaded until the sun rose. And he 
showed me his ritual chamber, which he lived in the basement, but then there was a basement to the basement. That just that's where his ritual chamber was. And he had concocted some weird machine that shot off sparks and it seemed like it could kill somebody. This is very hazy, but I do have a hazy memory of this. And then as we were coming back from the party to go to the bunker earlier, he had seen in the window this what turned out to be, I think it was a dissection table um, for human bodies. Yeah. And, uh, and he thought it was just an S&M table, but I think it turned out to be a dissection table with big buckets underneath. So we went and he purchased it and he says, well, there goes this month's rent. <laughs> and then ever since then, you know, every time I was in town, you know, we just get together and have a good time together. And then with Sotos, oh, it's so hazy. But we were in, I think, with my band, with Wendy. We, we, I was in Phoenix Thunderstone, and we were recording with Steve Albini in Chicago. Maybe we actually connected with Sotos earlier than that, because I think she contacted him because she wanted to interview him for Primal Chaos. And then he wrote her, I've been a fan of yours for years, which is weird. He's like, Mr. Noise guy has been a fan of neither neither world and wendy but yeah he, he really liked her and respected her so we just started this um friendship and then i think i first met him when phoenix thunderstone was in chicago recording with steve albini who had done some white house records the band sodas was in yeah and then he and i met and it just immediately got along you know immediately just because we both drank like fish yeah so that helped and you know i was so obsessed with everything written by the marquis de Sade, and obviously he is too mm -hmm. and uh but yeah i mean it, it wasn't just happenstance for either one of them there was always a reason to get in touch with them but uh, yeah those are two people uh, you know i feel lucky to have met they're very interesting and i got sort of an inside look at how how they operate and you know i those are two people i've gotten shit for you know respecting their work uh, I think they're both massively misunderstood, like massively. Oh, yeah. oh especially um, Peter. Especially Peter, because yeah. like people have challenged me on this. Like, no, he's really he's a child molester. I'm like, no, he's not. Obviously, he's fucking not, because if, no. you, if you look at if you look at the way he he posits his his uh, stance, uh, especially when it comes to that book that was written by uh, the Moore's murderer uh ian brady Ian brady right he has a vehement disgust for the man and he doesn't he doesn't like hold back like no oh, no yeah. no punches pulled he's basically saying oh, this yeah. man makes me sick yeah 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 and he he hated that book and i argued about it because i was like this book is great he's like oh god give me a break that old queen doesn't know what the hell he's doing <laughs> and i'm like i think it's a great book man it's well you're an idiot so i'd be like okay fuck you but I mean, that's just how he is. He's, he, you know, Sotus really has his, he's very interesting and complicated. And anytime he hears anybody try to um, describe him, it just sickens him because yeah. everybody gets it wrong. He's just like, no, no, that's not how I think. You people are idiots. Mm -hmm. So he really, he's really a conundrum. Probably that should be on his gravestone. Peter Conundrum Sotos. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> The best people. Yeah, he, he, I mean, his his writing is just so. And I, I say in my book, I utilized his books, many of which were just given to me by him. And he, of course, he wouldn't sign them. Mm. Of course not. I think, I think he signed one selfish little because I threatened to come to his house and shoot him if he didn't. <laughs> but um, he, uh, yeah, the, the way he just gets him, I use those books to get myself into a very twisted frame of mind. So that I could write uh, the prose for one of my books, Thonic Prose and Theory. 
Yeah. And um, so I was just doing a steady diet of alcohol, Marquis de Sade and Peter Sotos. And holy hell, did it work? Yeah. But he he's so his, his I mean, it's it ain't pornography. It ain't light reading. But the way he it manages sentences and attacks paragraphs in the way it just it's just a really interesting writer. I mean, I don't even know who the hell you can compare him to. I, I'd almost want to say William S. Burroughs, but that doesn't even cut it. No, no. To me, um, to, to me, it's Jean like Genet, maybe I just I have no idea. Maybe I would actually yeah. liken it to the way he attacked music with White House and especially with that record that he did with Albini. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Oh yeah, what was that called? Um, God, oh man, up. I own it, and and I had a hard time getting it. Yeah, and, I can see it. I but, think he gave. I think he gave me a copy. God knows where it is now. Yeah, it, it, that's a hard listen too. But you know, Thonic Force has that same uh, that same vibe. But uh, like, I used to make noise music myself, and every time I would be creating these, you know. I, I don't like to call them collages because there was more intent there than just a, like a sonic collage. But I would get into a frame of mind making this music that was very almost like despairing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, oh, sure. And I often wondered, like when you were creating music with Thonic Force, did, did that have the same sort of effect on you? It wasn't despairing. No, it was more like kind of um, predatory triumphant or something. Because I was a solid Nietzschean, a solid, solid Sadian, um, with a whole bunch of, you know, with the influence of Boyd Rice and Midas Wright thrown in for good measure. So I, I was, I, you know, I coined a phrase years ago, um, the decadent overman, you know, because Nietzsche's whole um, philosophy was Ubermensch. against, yeah, the Ubermensch, but against decadence, yeah. which would be, say, represented by Baudelaire or anybody that engaged in their senses too much like nietzsche liked you to be more stoic like nail it down but then he also admitted that he was a decadent himself because of all of his illnesses and whatnot Mm -hmm. so i just i liked you know i always thought of myself as sort of a a decadent overman and um but the decadent part was just reveling in all of the uh you know the alcohol the drugs the sex oh my god the sex Mm -hmm. and um but also but reveling in it not not despairing so the despairing was really far from my mind it was much more about celebrating celebrating in a very dark sort of way right yeah. uh, uh to me it, especially with like all of your music has its own special something but thonic force to me i think smacked the most of, of not knowing you but getting closer like the closest i could to possibly knowing what sort of person you were through that at that time period anyway yeah yeah there's some I mean, there's some interesting like i think on the gotha damon um because boyd and i were working together on dagobert's revenge mm-hmm. and exploring the fallen angels which meant reading the bible which my mother was an atheist i never read the fucking bible so i decided to read the bible and that old testament boy whoo and that's like J- jewish the iliad you know it's like wow there's some violence in there oh yeah and uh, so i was inspired by the bible so most of what's and a lot of carl jung but most of what's um inspired um agatha damon by thonic force was the bible and uh especially like that song king of the world that came from some somewhere 
Boyd and Tracy and I were researching the idea of the king of the world, this sort of uberman who's taken over, and he was reading a lot of L.A. Waddell and Sumerian um, hieroglyphs or, or stelies. And um, it was it was just all a lot of crazy stuff floating around at the time. But I, but kind of the track underlining, which was strange for me, having you know been a Thelemite my whole life, was studying the Bible and getting inspired by it. So a lot of that record was inspired by the Bible, whereas um, the first Thonic Force record was just inspired by flat out Nietzsche and Desaad, you know, mm-hmm. which is pretty obvious. Yeah, yeah. I, I, that second record is probably the most uh, immersive, one of the most immersive uh, noise based records i've ever heard a friend of mine who's also who's far more into that style of music than i i ever had been and i'm a massive fan of it uh, he had a hard time getting through it there's something about that record um has has he ever has he ever listened to white house oh he's he owns the entire white house discography oh, and he can get through white house but he couldn't get through agatha (laughs) yeah well there's i guess there's something about that specific uh uh content that that really rings true for him he had a very right, right. he had a very difficult time with that record i remember, oh, really yeah good. absolutely no, i mean not good not good and you know I'm so glad it's hurting somebody and good it's good when you get put through ordeals because it means you're moving to something different you're moving to something else yeah uh, I, I mean that's that's obvious and i think this this book that you've written was was even though you'd already gotten through it all by the time I guess you penned the book, it, it, it almost feels like writing it would be an ordeal as well because you oh. have to kind of live it again. Oh, yeah. No, it was tough. It was it was real tough. And to get my myself out of the, that headspace, you know, because um, everything in my life is about KM. Like, I just want, I'm, you know, she's, she's an oracle for Thelema, so I want her to be as comfortable and make her as happy as I possibly can. But part of being a high thalemic initiate is you have to go through ordeals. And the ordeals are pretty fucking severe the higher up you get in the initiatory scale. I'm way down at like Yasad at this point. Like I'm, I'm, I've barely gotten through what would be called the ordeal X, whereas she's dealing with, and if you read Nemo Pandragon, his site, iwas.com, in the Book of Codes, it reveals all of this to, to people that aren't familiar. But she's going through the final ordeal, ordeal A, which is all ordeals in one. And it's it's brutal. I mean, so um, yeah. So writing that book, I really had to compartmentalize things because it would just tear me up writing the fucking thing. Yeah. And not only did I have to write it by hand first, then I had to type it into the computer. So I'm reliving it like twice, and then over and over again while I'm trying to edit it. And I had to compartmentalize. Okay, that happened a while ago. It's bothering me now. I'll write this while she's at work, and I could just get it out of my system then i got to go out for like a jog for about an hour you know to just sort of shake it all off and then feel much better and then you know it was around that time too and i while i was writing and i was doing a lot of buddhist meditation so i it was definitely it, it affected me in the sense that i really strove to be a better person because i had seen what a horrible person i'd been in the past so do you really think you that that what you had done though from you know your youth and with the dwarves uh, up until the time where y- you shed all of that does that make you a horrible person or does that make you no just the period of time after i left the dwarves until about 10 years ago 
because what I did to my my ex-wife and uh, and how I was treating other people, I mean, it's, it's all in the book. Yeah, I was just I was a drunken mess. I was just I was um, I was in a, a, a high speed uh, truck going downhill with no brakes. I mean, it was it was insane. And anybody that got in my way got smashed. Yeah. Um, people whose hearts I broke, you know, because I was going through my midlife crisis or whatever the hell it was. And it ain't no normal midnight crisis. I mean, it's just, it was insane. I mean, and and the drinking just never stopped. I mean, except when I went to rehab, you know, three times in a row. Um, It just never stopped. It was morning, noon, and night. It was just go, go, go. And mix that with obsessed with sex, just needing sex from any place I could get it. Um, You know, it, it, it was... how I treated people, um, I definitely feel ashamed of now, during that period. Now, with the dwarves, if you come to a dwarf show, you're entering the arena. Right. You know it. You know it. If you if at this point, well, even back then, if at this point you don't know what it's going to be about, then you should just turn around and get the fuck out. Yeah. But with that, it's like on stage and even off stage, you're putting on a show. And I was Vag more 24-7 when I was on the road. And uh, that, to me, it's like... People know what they're getting, so I don't want to hear your complaints. So that was more like celebration. I, I told um, Danny Bland, who was key in actually getting me to rehab and, and saving my life, he wrote the introduction to this book, mm-hmm. and um, he—it's um, like what he went through was amazing because he was going through what I was going through, but about God, how many decades before? I mean, I guess it was in '92 or '93. He had to go to rehab. As soon as he got out of rehab, he joined the dwarves. What the hell? Everybody was like, what are you thinking, man? <laughs> but but it was what he had to go through. And he 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 he's been sober ever since. And he just it was amazing. That was something that really he really inspired me actually to get my shit together and whatnot. But um I guess we all go through different things at different periods and we have to follow through whatever we have to follow through. I, you know, I'm sure I feel bad about how I treated people in those 10 years, but at the same time, I, you know, I also know I wouldn't be the person I am now if I hadn't gone through all that. And I, I, I I think there has to come a point for you where what you just said has to really ring true because the, like that time machine is never going to come for us. You know what I mean? We're never going to be able to go back. back. No. As much as like, you know, in the 12 step program, you know, we get into amends and stuff like that. And that's great, mm-hmm. but you're never going to be able to undo it. And no. we, we all, we all transgress. There's oh, no, sure. there's no getting around it, mm-hmm. but everything you're guilty of, I'm guilty of. So mm-hmm. yeah, maybe mm-hmm. I'm just saying that to try and you know, forgive myself, sure, sure. but I also don't think you would have not only would you not have fallen in love uh, and you wouldn't have ascended to this spiritual pinnacle had you not gone through those trials that are necessary in 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 your belief system to mm-hmm. get there you know uh, it, yeah, it's no all doubt. it's all I I hate to say planned but it is Yeah I mean um I think it's it's well in, Obviously, in Thelema, you have the true will, and you need to follow your true will, otherwise everything's going to fall apart. Yeah. Um, so in that sense, your true will is planned. But if you start straying off that path, man, you're going to run into some rocks. 
Yeah. And that, and I was running into rocks there for about 14 years, I guess. <laughs> I'm trying to remember how long it was. Because once I left the dwarves, I mean, it was just, you know. And I'm glad I didn't. I'm glad I did. I'm glad I didn't stay in the band because I wouldn't have been able to go off and, and do everything I've done. And God bless Blag for still sticking it out and fucking going out there every goddamn year on the road and doing this. You know, it's just amazing. And he does it for the love of the music, you know. And I love the music too, but I think I was doing it for the experiences, you know, just the amazing experiences. And um, once that was over, you know, I, I loved the ego boost, so I kept trying to relive the ego boost in various ways. And eh, well, it wasn't working, man. Because, you know, you're not that anymore. You're, you're, you've left the band. You don't have the excuse now. You don't have an excuse to be an asshole, a drunken idiot anymore. Yeah. Um, now you're just a, a dude without a band with a book that's barely selling with a drinking problem. And you're just pissing people off left and right. So, so I strayed off that path. But it wasn't until I got in contact with KM that slowly but surely... Started sliding back into my true will, and it's been like that ever since. Do you think there's going to be a space in this new version of yourself uh, where you will continue to make music of some sort? Maybe. Um, I know uh, Wendy and I have discussed uh, doing a new Thonic Force that may or may not happen. She, she's um, always she's just moved, and uh, I just don't know if we have the time to actually do it. But who knows? Somewhere down the line, we might. The one good thing about Thonic Force, you know, I kind of liken it to Coil. You know, um, you know, they barely played live. Yeah. Um, and um, they just got older and just kept on sort of evolving as a band. You know. And Genesis Peorge from from Psychic TV, Throbbing Gristle, Gristle did the same. So I feel like, as opposed to a rock band, there's no pressure to like put out a record, hit the road, you know, go back home, rehearse, write songs, put out a record, hit the road, go back. You know, there's no pressure like that. But the band like Thonic Force, you know, just put it out whenever the hell I feel like it. That same with that's how Boyd Rice has been running non for his entire life, you know. It's like one of his greatest records was God and Beast, and then he put out Receive the Flame. And then after that, it's a long time until he put out a record because he just it's like, eh, just not feeling it, man. Yeah. You know, all the little parts and pieces didn't come together. But then he put out that last one. And, uh, you know, I feel like Thonic Force is the same way. Like, you know, if the if all the elements come together, yeah, sure, we'll put out another one. But if not, eh, doesn't bother me. So part three of the book of this trilogy is in somewhere in the future. Uh, is there anything else like in a literary sense that you've been working on that that's going to come to light in the near future? Um, well, after, yeah, first I like within the coming weeks, I, I got to take a break because the writing and then, and I dealt with a horrible layout person for this book. Yeah. It was just a nightmare. Um, I'm just putting all that aside. I'm like, yeah, I just want to relax for a little while, you know, but I know, I, but just like what happened at the end of the first wars book before I started my second book, um, something's working around in the back of my brain, start to remember stories like, okay, who can I contact to get confirmation about this happening and that happening? Blah, blah, blah. So that's, even though I'm saying, I don't even want to think about it right now. Something in the back of my brain is going, okay, let's get contact with guys used to know in junior high school. All right, let's see where this began. How did this start? Talk to your sister. Let's see what she says. 
So it's all sort of germinating back there and percolating. Um, then after that, uh, I mentioned in the new book that there's going to be a book about me and Cam's experiences with Lima and the 93 Current, and that'll be called For the Love of the Serpent. Mm-hmm. And that's going to include all of our communications with IWAS, which are all right in that closet. I wrote them all down. Um, she had to write them down because when she spoke during this oracle situation you you couldn't understand the damn word she was saying so i was like i just gave her the pen and pencil when it first started happening and or the pen and pad and said here write this shit down and she'd just be in a total trance but then she would write it down then once she came out then i would copy it in more legible form and she would help me like no that's that word that's that word so all of that is going to be included in for the love of the serpent the story a more detailed story about how that all transpired is going to come out um there's going to be uh detailed explanations about uh, how this actually operates um what kenneth grant and crowley and others have said about say the the um the menstrual rights um i mean this is still this is also percolating in the back of my brain but there's a lot more to sort of hash out but yeah uh, that'll be the next one after the final book of the trilogy and um then after that, I, ha- I've, I had a book that I wrote actually while we were in the middle of all this, um, this craziness over the last 10 years. I wrote a book called Demonic Love Under a Red Moon, which once we got to New Orleans, um, she's like, you just you need to write a book about all these experiences we're having. And I've been looking over Foucault's Fountain by, oh God, what was the guy's name? I have the book over here somewhere. But um, it was like a, a book that, was inspired by western magic and crowley's mention in there in the golden dawn what have you and i thought well instead of me having to actually get a job maybe i can write this book and it'll be a bestseller oh yeah that'll just happen overnight (laughs) but at least it inspired me to do it so uh, demonic love under a red moon will be out eventually someday and um then other than that the only other thing that's been sitting in my back of my brain for a while are the correspondences that me and Nemo Pandragon had, he my Thelemic mentor. Um, KM is still writing to him and still in communication with him, but I've sort of, once she appeared, I've sort of let those two, because she really needs more mentoring than I do at this point. But I've got um, huge three or four spiral notebooks of, of emails between he and I before I ever met KM and then during the time that we met and so I'd like someday to take that and, and turn that into a book about correspondence between he and I, because his take on Thelema and all of that is it's amazing. I mean, it's I I, uh, I uh, push everyone to go to iwas.com, A-I-W-A-S-S-W-A-I-W-A-S-S.com. And uh, if it touches you, then yeah, read through it. It's, it's amazing because... He gave me a different perspective on Thelema than I'd ever had before. And when I first came upon that site, I was like, what is this? Because it's purporting to be a, a new revelation from IWAS and all this stuff. And all this happened like back in 1977 and what have you. But um, it really that and, you know, obviously Crowley's own works and then Kenneth Grant's works just have so inspired me. But it was really... The mentorship of Nemo Pandragon that really, really helped me and really got me going and gave me a new and different perspective on Thelema and how it is.
So with a lot of correspondence between he and I over the period of 2009 to 2014, I guess it was. <clears throat> and then I sort of passed him over to, to KM. And, um, but the, yeah, there's some fascinating stuff in there. So that's going to take a long time to go through that. Hundreds of pages of, you know, emails. I'm going to have to kind of winnow it down, winnow it down to like the best stuff. But th that's, and unless I come up with something else, that'll be the last thing that I'll be, I'll be publishing. But that's years, years in the future. And so, uh, right now I'm just concentrating on finishing the, the trilogy. So you're putting like, uh, sort of a moratorium on on the end of your writing career well i mean if i line things up too much then it'll i'll just be so overwhelmed i'll just curl up on the floor and start sucking my thumb it's like fuck. <laughs> so i think my brain is just like all right dummy just this and this and that and then we'll see it's like okay i can do that so after that who knows so with all like within the confines of your own view of Thelema and the spiritual world uh do you have an opinion on you know where where these beings actually reside or is it a dimensional thing or oh yeah oh yes um i mean i started reading you know when we were having those these experiences cam and i um i started reading um modern day physics quantum physics uh, mm -hmm. all the different dimensions and i'm like well yeah <laughs> that's what i've been experiencing for the last few years so yeah i know this exists so uh, yeah it's a dimensional thing the, these things and i don't know if this is physics but this is my own personal belief about these beings and, and whatnot like iwas and what have you um or bobby osna as he revealed himself to us um they vibrate at a different frequency and that's what makes different um that's what makes different dimensions, different frequencies. Now, a physicist might watch this and go, what? No, that can't be. It's not. But that's just my intuition. They just vibrate at different frequencies. To me, that makes sense. Coming from a guy coming from a guy who took his GED and never graduated high school. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, like dimensions, are, like we're, we're finding out now that uh, the gentleman who had uh, come out and said that he was uh, reverse engineering alien spacecraft. Uh, his name escapes me at the moment, but he said back in the seventies that gravity moves in waves and every, every scientist on earth was like preposterous wrong. We found out right, th right. this past year. Yeah. It's, now they're it's, saying it. it's the truth. Uh, well, I mean, when I was studying, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. But like, if you think about it, uh, you know, that's still, based on waves there's still like a sine wave to it there's still a frequency to it i mean to me it only makes sense that you know dimensional the different dimensions are based upon frequency like crystals and the like people we we were kind of almost right when it came to things like that because crystals we know have a radio frequency mm -hmm, mm -hmm. sure sure yeah but, i mean they're yeah there's crystal crystal um Fueled radios or what have you. I, yep. Again, just got my GED, so I never graduated <laughs> high school. So I don't know. <laughs> but um, yeah, I mean, what, you know, some of the books that really fascinated me, like, uh, um, well, uh, during my period of really studying um, Buddhism, the Dalai Lama, the 14th Dalai Lama, the current Dalai Lama, and man's a genius. 
I mean, you, you see um, him on TV, and he seems like such a smiley dope, you know, hi, do, 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 but man, you read his books, and this guy is mind as sharp as like a razor blade. And uh, he really dedicated a lot of his time to writing books about um, uh, the findings of Buddhists all the way back to Buddha himself 2,000, almost 600 years ago, to what physicists have been discovering just recently. And, you know, you just have to look at that and go, well, wow, I mean, it's, it's incredible. So it, it's always been true. And I always kind of felt it anyway, if you meditate enough and go deep in, enough inside of yourself, you go deep enough and quiet the ego and the conscious mind, you're going to tap into what is the basis of everything. And so many people um, say, oh, Buddhism is about um, nothingness. Nothing exists. It's pretty nihilistic. No, that's not what they're saying. No. They're saying is. Everything is based on dependent origination. What does that mean? It means that everything is dependent on everything else. Everything. There's no independent self. There's no independent matter. There's no independent nothing. Everything is connected and based on something else for its origination. And nothing ever begins and nothing ever ends. And um, the Dalai Lama really harped on that a lot in so many of these books about, you know, of physics and buddhism and um it's just always been something that sort of stuck with me now physicists will say some worlds do collapse but then they balloon and bubble out to a new universe so really it's never ending yeah. this one might be ending but then this one bubbles out to a whole new universe so it, you know that's something while i was reading the dalai lama's books on physics i was just all constantly reminded about reminded of alistair crowley the method of science what does he say? Um, the method of science, the something of religion. I, I can't remember. I'm getting old and senile. <laughs> but Crowley always emphasized during all of this, um, experiencing all of this magic and these higher states of consciousness, he emphasized how important it is to utilize science to understand it. And he believed that as our experiences and the spirituality grows, our understanding of physics will increase as well. And if Crowley had been alive today, he'd be reading some of these books by, what's his name, Machu Kuku Kaku, I can't remember his name, it's been a few years since I read his books. But Crowley would have read those books and gone, gone like, oh yeah, that's that's how I contact IWAS, that's how all this has been happening. And so you just have to, that, you know, that's one, that's one reason why I really felt, um, Buddhism was really important for my future evolution because I started reading these books by the Dalai Lama and it just seemed like it was Crowley speaking from out of the past. You know, com two completely different types of people, right. obviously. Dalai Lama ain't snorting coke off hookers' tits or nothing. <laughs> but um, the way they would tap into things and the way they would um, confront the truth um, was very similar, and it was just really, really fascinating to me because I had always been adamantly against Buddhism my whole life. You know, I was like, "Fuck that!" Um, even one time when the dwarves were recording, um, uh, "Thank Heaven for Little Girls" in in um, Madison, Wisconsin, I remember uh, we saw some Buddhists walking down the street, and I just started yelling, "God damn Buddhists!" And I was going to go over and start hitting them. <laughs> I thought it was hilarious. Because a part of me was like, who would be angry at Buddhists? But I decided I was going to be. You know, <laughs> they're the most 
loving people in the world. But I was like, I'll kill you, you fucking goddamn Buddhist Nirvana then. So, you know, I'd always been um, adamantly opposed, but also respecting it, you know, and seeing the ridiculousness of somebody being mad at a Buddhist. Yeah. Uh, but I did, I, but I, something in me just started telling me I have to start utilizing this to understand, you know, compassion and love. Because if every man and every woman is a star, you should have some compassion for each one of those people, no matter who they are. And so that was ba- that was bashing up against my many years of misanthropy and many years of Nietzschean uh, elitism and whatnot. But it was something that just had to be done. But um, I've just found, you know, I'm not rejecting anything anymore. Like I, what I, I no longer, for my spiritual path, there's no longer anything that I won't dive into. Because if it feels right, if I resonate to it, and if it feels like something I need to do at this particular time for my evolution, then that's what I'm going to do. So it's really sort of opened up the world for me in a lot of ways, more than ever before. It's interesting. It's, it, it's, it's pretty amazing to me that someone who could have mined the depths so fully like and and truly gone to what is the most bottom of bottoms uh when it concerns the human spirit and the, the human body uh to be completely lifted back up out of it and have that mindset at the end of it always always fascinating to me it's it's fantastic because you know going through that much even like having been to rehab and things like that 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 still breaks people that still puts people in a place where like okay yeah i'm sober i'm here now what right right for for you there was never the now what it's just yeah. i have to be sober because i'm going here yeah there was a trajectory yeah. that was always in your purview and yeah. and that's that's the incredible part i think that's the part that if you're going to glean anything from this book, I, I would think it would be that, that, you know, the goal wasn't just to become sober, uh, uh, to shed yourself of dependence, but truly, uh, trying to attain something mm-hmm. more enlightened and, and, and more at one with what the universe has for us. Yeah. And I, what I was, what I utilized initially was, Nietzsche, and obviously Thelema has been with me since I was, like I said, 16. Maybe it was even younger, but I think I was 16. But um, something in me just knew. You have to ascend, man. There's more to do. Wherever you are now, it's limiting. You got to go someplace unlimited. And uh, Nietzsche really helped me when I got sober, which, you know, so many people are like, oh, you really should be reading the Bible or the big book or whatever. I just, even when I was at rehab, I was reading, you know, Walter Kaufman's portable Nietzsche and making notes, you know, on the side with a pencil and just like concentrating on this, like, I'm going to make myself a Nietzschean overman, God damn it, even if it kills me. <laughs> and um, that's really what uh, saved me because I, I started imposing intense self-discipline on myself. And I still do it today, just not with as much, um, not, not with as much um, insanity, I guess. But I, you know, I guess I had to have that kind of insanity because I had come from a place of just no discipline, and maybe not necessarily true because even even in my worst states, I was still performing rituals and doing all that stuff. But and jogging, for that matter. <laughs> um, 
but after I, once I put down the bottle and Cam and I got together and moved in together in New Orleans, it was just, yeah, it was like a tra trajectory to, I have an ideal in my head, the Nietzschean overman, that's what I'm going to be. And it worked great. It got me in, in a place where now it's like, without even thinking about it, you know, I jog every day. Um, I have in my backyard, I've turned into a jogging track. I mean, it's, it's, God, it's fantastic. Um, but then also there's the spiritual. It's not just about, you know, being a, a bodily overman. It's about um, tapping into something higher. So there's your Crowley. And then uh, through all of that, I still felt like I was um, blocking myself from various things. So then I ingested a whole lot of Buddhism and started following that. And then I realized I had the will down, just not the love. And I've got that down pretty well. So... Um, Right now, I'm just in a, in a place where I'm. I think we talked about, you know, Tobias Churton. Yeah, his books are, are phenomenal. So I'm really sort of, you know, ingesting uh, everything that uh, he's written, and I feel like I'm a born again Thelemite. You know, it's really sort of interesting. Like uh, I'm back into it. It's just for the last few years of being Mister Buddhism, I now feel like you know I, I'm born again as you know disciple of Satan or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> and uh but there's always something you know one thing i loved about buddhism for all those years and when i get into something maybe you've noticed i go in whole hog yeah so, i mean i dive right the fuck in <laughs> so when i dove into buddhism i dove into it deep and constant um at work i've got all these buddhist books on my phone I'm at home i'm studying constantly and um the one thing i loved so much about embracing all that was there's got to be trillions of books on Buddhism out there. And I mean, there must be trillions. You no, can't yeah. ever run out. You, I could, I could be doing this for the rest of my life, and I'll still read new books that I never saw before. Thank you to the internet and these PDF downloads and whatnot. But it's just, it's phenomenal. And uh, so when I dug, dug into it, I really dug in deep and, and just, you know, um, just overload on all of it so much. And uh, now I feel like, you know, I don't know where it's going to lead, but now I feel like the next overload for me is going to be William Blake. You know, I really want to dive into him and, and understand uh, his system. I always felt like there's something, and I know, you know, I've already done it, but I, when I write these books, like especially this trilogy, um, I kind of go away and it just sort of comes out. Yeah. Um, and when I'm writing now, my ego seems to go away and sometimes I kind of wake up at the end of it. I'm like, what did I just write? Um, like I recently wrote a, uh, a little bit for a dwarves release that's coming out pretty soon. I won't say much about it cause you know, they haven't announced it yet, but I, yeah. I wrote a little bit and I kind of went into a trance when I wrote this thing. And then when I came out of it, I'm like, Oh, that's, that's quite good. <laughs> Who wrote that? And uh, so I love the idea of the, the poet, the artist who um whose ego disappears and something else comes through him like he's the like like Cam has been the oracle for what's been going on with us. Like I become sort of an uh, oracle for probably my true self, you know. And that's uh William Blake to me is is always represented that. I mean he, his ego had to disappear for all of this amazing stuff to come out. And so I want to really delve into him afterwards uh, after I'm done with all of this um and really understand him he's he's definitely one of the um gnostic saints i believe really 
mentions him as William Blake yeah. and not Rick Saint. So it's it's been somebody I've been wanting to embrace for years. But God, have you ever tried to read William Blake? I own everything William Blake has ever done. Uh, I, I I reach different points in my life where I'm like, okay, I get it. And and then I, I find that I've been completely wrong the entire time. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Especially when you consider the fact that Blake wasn't just writing. There's art involved. There's like art and there's engravings and engra- all this shit. Like, like, whoa. Blake was the first king of of all media as as it were you know he's the old howard stern he he was the first howard stern he did everything (laughs) he he legitimately i've been been wanting to crack his code for years and i just uh, when i sit down and try to read it it's like i know this is great and beautiful but what the fuck but that's how i felt when i first started reading crowley many 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 years ago so i i know there's something more to so I don't know. So I guess where I'm getting at with all this babbling is that I feel that William Blake and um, Gnosticism are going to sort of be the basis of a new launching pad for something else. And I'm not quite sure what. I, I have to ask this. And I ask it of every guest. It's the only question I ask every guest. But I think of all of my guests, your answer is probably the one I would love to hear most. And that is, what is it that you, Vag, are most existentially terrified of? What is that that deepest of dreads that you still foster? I'm not afraid of death. Uh, I'm not even really afraid of horrible violence. I guess the, the only thing I'd be afraid of is, say, um, getting Alzheimer's or uh, or having an extreme head wound where I'm just checked out that's probably the only thing that terrifies me still being alive but being sort of a vegetable loss of self i don't no don't i can't i can't go there i'd be like take me out because no and um um, my mother was actually the same way she told me you know hey if somebody because my brother had gone off to college and then worked for ibm and my sister went off and she passed the bar and she's an attorney and blah 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 so they were both off, and so me and my mother had you know, spent a lot of time together. And she told me once, um, you know, when it's my time to go, and she, she had me when she was 42, so she was getting old even when I was in my 20s and 30s. Hmm. When it's my time to go, uh, you know, if, if something happens to me and I'm checked out, don't keep me on a machine. I, I don't want to be an asparagus yeah. hooked up to, to machines. Just get me out. So when it came time to to do that, when the doctor asked us after she had, I mentioned this in the book, when doctor asked us after she had had her stroke and she's hooked up to this machine, this breathing machine apparatus that was keeping her alive, they said, so he, doctor took us into the room and he said to us, uh, so do any of you know what her wishes were? Would she want to stay alive? Do we, should we unplug her? What's, what are your thoughts? And then both my brother and my sister looked at me like, I'm like, well, she always told me, you know, if she's going to be a vegetable, take her out. Yeah. So that's a say, I guess that's my worst fear. So if I'm going to be a vegetable, take me out. I'm done. But, yeah, you know, yeah. I've never, what's odd is I've never been afraid of death. Like uh, something me in me neither. just knows, yeah, big deal. We'll just me move neither. on. Yeah, like, never one of my fears. Never. Yeah, like I want on my gravestone to say, you know, um, Tim Madison lived 1967 to whenever, uh, and then in quotation marks with an exclamation mark, next! 
<laughs> go again that's one that's one of the things that crowley mentioned in uh oh i can't for the life of me it might be in magic and theory and practice he has an amazing um analogy metaphor whatever he says that life is really just like a punch and judy show you know and then you just get taken out but then you pop back up yeah and that's that's kind of what happens <laughs> life is a punch and judy show and if people get punch and judy uh you're oh, probably, right you're probably our age you're definitely older yeah but look it up on the internets kids look it up on the and on them their interwebs but yeah you brought up something else that i kind of want to broach really quickly uh because i'm 47 and four years ago i had another child with my my wife uh so like when he's in his teens and 20s i'm going to be elderly like elderly um how how did that dynamic uh being that your your mother was in her 40s when she had you how did that dynamic between she and yourself differ than that of maybe your older siblings well they my older siblings had my father I, i'm not trying to be sexist but straight up you know this is in the 50s and 60s yeah when they were growing up my brother and my sister so there was no screwing around you know my my dad was an amazing person he did so i i had the in-laws over the other uh, day and um and uh, i found my father's obituary online and just read it to them like this is what he's done 42 for short years and all, everybody was just sitting around the dinner table going like holy shit no wonder this guy died at 42 i mean talk about an overman like jesus christ so uh i'm sure he was a no-nonsense kind of character but everyone says he was a wonderful man very much a saint but um there was no screwing around my brother ended up becoming a world-renowned physicist who worked for ibm my sister ended up ended up becoming a, a defense attorney in san francisco she became widely known as the pit bull of san francisco I, on the other hand, <laughs> joined a band whose first record I played on was called Blood, Guts, and Pussy. Yes. But, you know, every, but everything I've carried on with that through all of that, you know, I've obviously followed my own path. And um, my mother just could not control me. Without my father there, who died when I was five months old, I just did whatever the fuck I wanted. You know, I ran away from home probably at 13, lived in squats and abandoned vehicles and but there was a scene, this is like between 1979 and 1983 or whatever. I mean, there was a punk rock scene. We had a tribe and we all hung out together. Yeah. And, you know, you'd, you'd go sleep, you know, in an abandoned house or at somebody else's house and get up and, you know, figure out a way to get loaded and go to see Black Flag or the Circle Jerks or TSOL or Wasted Youth. I mean, every night there was something to do. And so, but I, I pretty much just ran wild, wild in the streets. Running, Literally. running. <laughs> running running literally um but then you know i it just you know i i guess i just started slowing down and various things happened that just sort of turned my mind around and then i became a lot more introspective and then i tried going to college for a time you know and i had played in bands when i was younger um and um then i just got a job at like this law firm and i was a clerk in the mail room and i was just a schlub you know and i just thought well you know i can do this for the rest of my life work here until it's time to retire and die uh and i was playing in bands sonic brain jam and uh 
he who cannot be named had a band that we did together with his girlfriend called gaping wounds i don't know if they've ever released any of that stuff but so but then the dwarves came along and Bly convinced me to join and believe it or not it's like early 88 mid 88 black had to talk me into joining the band i'm like i don't know i'm pretty comfortable you know it's and this is dwarves had like tool and for warm tea bag came out and horror stories yeah and i loved tool and for warm tea bag i thought it was incredible um, but I'm like, yeah, I got a pretty cushy life right now. Do I really want to change that? And then Black comes in like Caesar or something. It's just like fills me up with all these ideas and like, you know, this glorious future and promised me, promising me also we'll do one record and then we'll tour and we'll break up. I'm like, <laughs> oh, okay, well, sure. So how long will this last? Like a year? It's like, yeah. A dozen years later. Yep. <laughs> one fucking day. But, you know, I, I wouldn't have uh, had it any other way. There's so, so many weird, weird dualities, though, uh, uh, you know, that you keep bringing up that that kind of ride uh, a concentric circle around my life and experiences up to and including your first album with the Dwarves was my first album that I bought by the Dwarves. Oh, really? <laughs> yes. Okay. I was 15 years old. I, I oh, go wow. to the store and why would I not want that? young oh hell yeah tits. Punk, there's tits <laughs> I'm, I'm already a hardcore kid at this point i had uh -huh. since i was like 12. well actually <laughs> young, younger uh because mm -hmm. i went i went to see the clash open for the who with my dad when i was very young. oh wow that would been cool blew my whole fucking world open yeah, I'll bet. yeah. but I, i'm looking at this record cover and i'm like yeah i want this of course i want this uh -huh. Uh -huh. open my whole world up but there's a very very large chunk of my life that kind of would not have happened had the badge more not existed uh and and i i have to thank you for that because you've been kind of like that one of the demons on my shoulder for that and from 15 until 47 you know <laughs> well thank you it I is, have it, to say, there's a whole huge chunk of my life that would never have happened if Vagmore had never existed. <laughs> I created him, you know. It, you know, right. in later years, uh, I don't know if I think about it so much today because they're just so fused. Tim Madison and Vagmore. There was a time where I had to sort of do what Alistair Crowley. Or, I'm sorry, what Alice Cooper did, mm -hmm. where he had to say, "There's Vincent Fournier and there's Alice Cooper, and there's time for Cooper, there's time for Alice, and there's time for Vincent." You know. And I had to kind of do that for a little while, even though it didn't particularly work. Um, Vag Moore just took over my life completely, even after I'd left the band, which was very destructive. But um, yeah, I mean, I really have Blag to blame for all this. I mean, it's his fucking fault, <laughs> bastard. But you're not, you never let go of the name. No, because I knew, I mean, I, I knew I had to, I knew I wanted to write and I knew I, I had a lot of creative stuff. I've been writing ever since I was a teenager. You know, Henry Rollins and Hunter S. Thompson inspired me. Mm -hmm. Hunter S. Thompson wrote, then Rollins put out these tiny little books. This is before he had, you know, his publishing company. He put out these tiny little books that he had Xerox, I mean, to have at shows. Yeah. I'm like, I can do that. And I've been writing shit for years, so I just started putting that out. And I knew you know, nobody's going to buy a book by Tim Madison, you know, after 12 years as Badge Moore. So I'm like, Publish it as Vag Moore, of course. And then um, then it was, uh, you know, I put out Thonic Pros and Theory and I put out Malevolence. None of them, neither one of them sold worse shit. And then I was doing various um, articles and um, like books for uh, Michael Staley and Caroline Weiss. 
Kenneth Grant's um, people, yeah, and um, various other things as well. Um, and I'll just never forget um, watching the Dirt, Motley Crue, the Dirt, mm-hmm. and kind of getting intimations of what Nikki Six book was, you know. And I watched it, and I'm like, "Well, fuck the dwarves lived like this, but we did it on a shoestring budget, you know." Yeah. Well, if this guy could write this book, then fuck, why don't I write this book? And his book is like, what is the dirt? It's like 500 pages long or something yep. big. I'm like, dwarves fans don't have the attention span for that. So it's... I said, I'll just make it short and sweet, like a dwarf show. Yeah. I mean, like a dwarf show. It's just like, get on, wreck a bunch of shit, fuck a bunch of people, get off and feedback and smoke, and that's it. And so uh, he was. I just started writing it. It just sort of started coming out. But, uh, yeah, I mean, Vagmore has been sort of a, a curse and a blessing, you know, both at the same time, so many strange ways. Now, much more of a blessing. Like, I'm really glad I had that experience and glad of what I've made out of that name. You know, when people think, and if you know who Vagmore is, people that think about Vagmore, a lot of things pop up. No. And, um, yeah, and I'm really glad now that that's, you know, you could see all the crazy degeneracy old insane libertinism but then what emerges out of all that out of the phoenix rises and what emerges out of it is somebody with you know a lot of discipline um strength love um and a higher and yearning for something higher and that's sort of what i've always done just yearning for something higher and that takes courage to chase i I don't care who you are or or what it is what version of of enlightenment you're chasing uh to come out and actually tell the world okay this is what i'm after and here's how i'm about to do it uh Mm -hmm. most people like they're gonna look at you like you know they probably looked at jesus two thousand years ago two thousand like just real okay really you know <laughs> are you comparing badge more to jesus it's still a spiritual journey is it not you're going to hell so <laughs> if i if i'm going to hell i'm in phenomenal company there you go that's right that's what i always thought <laughs> we'll be there with everybody including william blake include well that's the first person i'm looking for right right but yeah i mean it's always there's just as long as i can remember it might have really kicked in when i first saw the picture of of Alistair Crowley in that magazine with Psychic TV, but something just kicked in. But even before that, you know, I was obsessed with Hunter S. Thompson and I wanted to write like him. I started writing like him. I was only 11 or 12. It was crazy. But, um, and then well, I guess it was really when punk rock came out when I first got Nevermind the Bollocks by the Sex Pistols. Um, that's when it first sort of hit on me that because I'd been really into Kiss. For many many years we all I wanted to be peter chris and i wanted to be a drummer and i became a drummer and did all this but it wasn't until the sex pistols record came out and i listened to it that i'm like i can do this like this isn't just you know i can't i'm not just going to be a fanboy of paul stanley and gene simmons ace Frehley, and peter chris for the rest of my life i can become paul stanley gene simmons ace Frehley, and peter chris yeah. And that's that's sort of what this, the Sex Pistols opened up for me, you know, and it's like, oh shit, I can do this. And uh, so I guess even back then I was always striving. There's just always been something in me that's pushing me forward. I don't know what it, the hell it is. So, so maybe, sometimes, sometimes I wish I could just be a schlub sitting on the sofa getting fat and 
watching <laughs> reruns of Family Ties or something, but I just can't do it. Well, that's the thing. I mean, like, you know, the 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 you you had the same thing I did. Uh, when you were a kid, you had uh, that imaginary friend deal. Uh, you claim yours didn't speak to you where mine did, but in all actuality, that could possibly have been a harbinger of things to come. I mean, to ha I I stand by this. We're born into this somehow. Mm -hmm. You don't just end up on the path. Something happens mm -hmm. uh, right at the outset that kind of pushes okay. you in that direction. Yep. My opinion is it was that. But, you know, I didn't live your life. I didn't, I don't know what your experience was as a small child with an imaginary friend. You know, most, most of the, of the time it's born of boredom, right? Or yeah, isolation. I think, yeah. I think it was more boredom and isolation. I don't, I don't really recall there really being somebody there. I think I, but who knows when you're a kid, you know, imagination, and reality kind of blend together. They sort of bleed together. So it's hard to say. Well, we, yeah, but, we, uh, we don't realize it's it's not real until someone disabuses us of the notion that it is not. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? Right, uh, right. Like, I have vivid memories of having, and it, this is going to sound strange, but I've known many people who've had the same vivid memory of having the ability to walk up and down stairs without my feet. Just mm -hmm. hover down, hover up. Oh, yeah. That's, Was that's... I, was I really doing it? Who knows? But I'm also of the opinion that had my parents not told me you couldn't do that, maybe mm -hmm. I'd still be doing that. Who knows? It, it could have been. It could have been sort of a, a sort of a taste of what is actually the astral travel, like your astral yeah. body. And yeah. I had. I definitely had an experience like that just before I joined the dwarves. I remember I was uh, living with this band, Sonic Brain Jam. We we're living on Fell and. Fillmore Street in San Francisco, and I was drinking like a fish, but also fucking like a demon. <laughs> but um, <clears throat> I just remember one time lying in my room, and next thing I know, I'm out of my body. And next thing I'm low, no, I'm bumping up against the ceiling like a balloon, and I'm sort of floating around. I'm like, what the hell is this? And I'm like, well, maybe I should try to get out the door and go outside, and maybe I can break into a beautiful lady's bedroom and watch her own dress you know as soon as i started thinking about something material like that it's just like it all i just came back into my body but yeah. for a good 15 minutes i was just bouncing around in my bedroom like a balloon it was really strange i'll never forget that so that that might have been the beginning of something where something in me was going it's time to wake up now you got things to do let's go uh, but, and, yeah. and that's the thing that well, that which tethers us to reality most, uh, I think, is really what is the biggest hindrance to us, um, because this is really the least of all that there is. I mean, I'm not saying quit your job and just go and, yeah. and, and, and exist in a room and, and meditate because you're not going to get anywhere that way. But, mm -hmm. but we have to mind more than just our day-to-day -day, our nine-to-five job and, yeah, and then right. paying your bills and your taxes there's there's yeah. so many other levels to our existence that are oh, yeah. there for the taking and yeah, yeah. it's incredible that you're doing that at such a, a, a vast pace um obviously you've had help but it's inspiring well thank you yeah i mean it, <clears throat> Some people do decide to just 
get away from the world. Buddhist monks go into monasteries and spend many, many years um, studying and meditating and, and working hard. I mean, if you think Buddhists are just people that sit around on their asses and go home all day, man, no. Severe discipline. And these people are, I mean, you just read about some of the uh, Tibetan Buddhists and how they grew up as children. You know, the Dalai Lama himself or Chagyam Trungpa, uh, severe discipline they were put through at a very early age. And uh, and then eventually having a breakthrough. So there's still avenues like that open up to people, but very few people have the ability to really go and do that. But those avenues are still open. But really, and one thing I like about Talima the most is that Curly said, don't, don't don't go away to a monastery, man. Don't, you know, maybe periodically go somewhere to meditate and tap into shit, but um you, you gotta live the world. You gotta live out you live your life and go out and live in the world. And that's and you know, um what was his uh, great quote of his? Um, uh, something like, count your blessings by your wounds or something like that. Um, I'm getting so old, I can't remember shit anymore. But uh, it's, it's something along those lines, like, um, essentially, you know, count how important your life has been by how many painful things you've had to endure. And you're not going to uh, experience those things unless you, you go out and try to live. And um, I sure as hell did that. I mean, yeah. especially touring with the band. Um, you know, there was no um, there was no net underneath us. You know, we, we were just four or five guys in a van just driving around the country. Either pissing people off or making people happy. You know, you never knew what was going to happen each night. But um, there was no safety net. Um, so anything could have happened out there. And, you know, Black still has the scars from, you know, what he's had to endure as the front man for a band like this. You know, he, his knees are in bad shape. You know, he, you know he, he's, he's gone to hell and back, and here he is still fucking doing it. Yeah. I mean, I respect that a lot. It's, you know, I couldn't do it. I was done. Of course, he didn't drink as much as I did. <laughs> or at all, really. Yeah, well, which would probably surprise a lot of people, but you know, yeah. you were you were the kind of the totem of that band for a very long time. I mean, they 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 wrote a song about it. Yeah, you know what I mean. And to this day, I was just talking to Blag. He, he says, "I I I don't make a secret of it. Vag is my favorite. Oh, I make no true. bones about it. The, you could listen to the interview. He he plainly <laughs> states it. Vag is my favorite." I don't care who ups who gets upset about it. That's just, yeah. what it you know, uh, I, I think you, he, he wanted you in the band because you were the spirit of that band for better or worse. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think for the, for better, because as you'd said, you weren't doing it to be malicious. It was the show. It was the, mm -hmm. that you were embodying the spirit, that spirit of that band. Right. Um, and now you're embodying the spirit of your writing and of your your spirituality and as i said before it's very impressive uh if, if i were to ask you to kind of sum up who vagmore is now into a couple sentences for the listening audience how would you uh go about doing that you son of a bitch oh <laughs> Sum up Vag more in a few sentences. Oh, good God. Oh, good God. There we go. 
Ex always explore, always accelerate, always ascend. Never be, never rest on your laurels. Always reach for something better and something higher. That's kind of what I've been trying to do. Which, you know, having been at the very bottom, wasn't so hard. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, that's, I guess that's kind of what I'm doing now. Wherever this ascension is supposed to take me. Which, you know. The path leads to only one thing, you know, at some point for all of us is death. Yeah. But as we covered, I'm, I'm not afraid of death in any way, shape or form. I just know I'm just going to move on to the next life. So and begin start the journey all over again. So to me, I. That's fantastic. That's exactly it's what I want. It's comforting. Yeah, in a lot of ways. Yeah. And And I think that's why I've never feared you know the idea of death and and being raised roman catholic maybe gave me a, a leg up in that because you know the idea of of you know the soul's quintessence uh was raised into me it was born into me you know uh, mm -hmm. it was taught to me from the, the very beginnings of of my consciousness like what this goes on you know this mm -hmm. is all. um there were there were many years where i doubted that uh, mm -hmm. To be certain but you know i just learned how to reapply it and and through gnosticism i kind of learned to integrate everything from mm. my my previous life as a catholic <laughs> oh yeah well gnosticism is good for that that's for sure oh See, I, my mother was my mother was an atheist my father was an irish catholic no, I'm an so irish. my brother and my sister got a little bit of that but my mother was like when I was a kid, I went out and I got up as high in the tree as I could, and I looked, and I didn't see no damn God. There ain't no God, so fuck it. <laughs> that was, that's how she got around all that. But, um, yeah, like, explore, like, I've always known that there's something more, and I've always known that, and I, and maybe I'll reveal it <clears throat> in one of my upcoming books. Um, I, I know who, I'm fairly certain I know who I was in the past, and they were writers. Um, but you know, I, one thing that Buddhism has really helped me, uh, to study more and more is because Buddhists reject that there is a, like Crowley says, every man and every woman is a star and the star carries on. Crowley's a poet. So yeah. I think he was trying to poeticize something that's a little more complicated than that. I think the Buddhists actually understood it the best. And they said, there isn't really a self, but there are these aggregates and memories that carry on. It's not really you because there's no actual self or ego, but these 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 aggregates of memory and whatnot and uh, aggregates of behavior and thought um, do carry on. And uh, you know, to me that's just a much more um, it's more much more insightful and complicated than just that we're a ball of light and one light gets done with this body and then this light drops into another body. Yeah. Which may may be it could actually be how exactly it is, but I, I like the Buddhist idea of you know a little more subtle than that. There are these aggregates of memories that carry on, and since uh, it's, you know it's called the mind stream for a reason. It's mind. It's a constant stream that permeates everything, and everything conscious experiences it. So, um, 
Yeah, I mean, I just, uh, you know, I, I think I've remembered a few aggregates from the past, and I certainly hope I remember, you know, the aggregates I've accumulated in this life, and I probably will, and just probably carry on with what I'm doing now into the next one. So that'll be interesting. Well, that's how enlightenment works, but yeah, where, where I've, the hell that leads me, right? Hopefully, I don't. Hopefully, I don't have to drink like a fish anymore, or snort <laughs> enough blow to kill a horse. <laughs> Hopefully, I got that out of the way. I don't have to do that anymore. Well, if dar if Dharma is to be believed, or Karma actually is to be believed, mm -hmm. uh, you certainly won't have to. But got it. I I hope not for your soul's sake, for certain. <laughs> Me too. Jesus, <laughs> God, just for the fuck the soul, just the body itself. Right. How the hell did this? I don't know how the hell this thing made it through it you were supposed to that's that's yep. the, the only way i could i could sum it up i don't know how yeah. i got through you know over 15 years of opioid and heroin dependency without mm -hmm. blowing my liver and teeth i still have all my teeth oh yeah that's amazing i was i was meant to chew food and and be alive right. <laughs> yeah. yeah see with i didn't like to slow down i like to go fast well, but i loved but i loved the alcohol so that's why that's why cocaine really cocaine really just came in because I wanted to stay awake to drink more and hit on more women and have more sex and go more crazy. Yeah, because I you know it's like I, I guess it was very childish because as when you're a child, you don't want to go to bed. You want to stay up with the adults and see what happens. Yeah, you know. So in my twenties and thirties, I don't want to go to bed. I want to stay up and see what happens and make shit happen. Cocaine was you know as soon as you start nodding out because you've had way too much vodka and whiskey you just snort a few lines and boom let's go yep so it was very childlike in that sense like let's go play with the adults say i was but wired I like... differently uh, heroin and, and and opioids made me go fast oh really oh yeah, yeah some people told me that that's weird yeah they're the worst they're the worst opioid addicts <laughs> yeah yeah i just never never I, I tried remember one time and this will be in the in the final book um me and my friends who were living in vans and had our own moving company in San Francisco in the mid eighties. Uh, we used to go around, um, we lived in the truck that we used as a moving van and we used to go around, um, finding abandoned vans and getting the engines to work and just taking them. We started compiling like an army of vans, you know? Mm. And one time, uh, our, I was in a band called the test subjects and my bass player, um, Michael Kingsley, otherwise known as Michael Hollick, um, he found like a huge ball of uh, of heroin or, or um, black tar. Yeah, yeah. This is how I the only drug I don't know much about. So we ended up smoking some of that and just hanging out. And oh my god, it felt great. But that's as close to you know anything like heroin or opiates like that I've ever got to. Yeah, it's never it was never my drug. Yeah, sadly that was my uh, that was my first love. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But you know, uh, all these all these places that 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 we uh, send ourselves to, it's a yearning for something other. I think. Uh, oh yeah. You know, we're, we're we're either trying to escape what's here, or we're trying to find what's there, and I think uh -huh. both both equal the same thing. And and once you realize that you're not going to get it in a prepackaged pill mm. powder or what mm -hmm. have you. The better off you are, yeah. but we never figure that out because we're frail. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, I, do, I did. I had some pretty phenomenal spiritual experiences on certain psychedelics. 
Well, that's once, different. Yeah. I mean, once on acid, I, I, I you know, having been raised an atheist, I, I never thought anything about Jesus, but I had some sort of weird bodily vision of, which I realize now is sort of a vision of Christ, like the Gnostic Christ, mm-hmm. not the church's Christ, the Gnostic yeah. version. And then years later, high out of my mind on, um, on uh, psychedelic mushrooms, which my girlfriend at the time was selling, uh, she would turn into this tea. Oh my God, this tea would just, um, and we went to, we were in Humboldt to go buy some more stuff for her business. And, um, uh, high out of my mind. And I just remembered on this mushroom tea and just remembered looking at this little trickling of water that was going down right by us, this little Creek. And I was just stream, stream, mind stream, mind stream. It's all a mind stream. We're all in a mind stream. And then I looked at her and I realized you and I have been together in the past. Our mind streams have crossed. We've done this before together. And she was like, she was like, whatever, man. But you know, she was having her own thing that she was going through. But I, I just recognized that like, so that when I started reading in Buddhism about the mind stream, I was like, oh, I've had a vision of that. I've understood that. And then when I was reading Gnosticism about sort of a bodily vision of Christ where I actually put, it was like I put myself on the cross in this acid trip when I must've been 18, 19, I can't even remember. And uh, then when I read read those texts later, I realized what experience I was having and that was brought on by psychedelics, which are just amazing, but you can't, if you then go and start taking LSD every goddamn day because you want to relive that experience, you're just going to burn yourself out. Yeah. So, you know, it was gradual, but then as, you know, I started getting older and got rid of the alcohol and the drugs and started meditating, all those experiences started coming back to me and I realized what had, what had happened. And I'm like, oh, I was just tapping into all that stuff. Yeah. And like William Blake says, all religions are one. So it makes sense that, you know, within one lifetime, I can have this Buddhist vision of the mind stream and the Christ vision, you know. And at the same time, be a, a Thelmite, so-called Satanist. So, you know. Right. Go figure. Well, and, you know, this is neither here nor there. Do you have a thing with owls at all? I Yeah, I do. You know, I like them. And we used to have some hooting out in front of my mom's house. And I used to love them. Um, the owls in Twin Peaks. I love Twin Peaks. When it first came out, there was oh, these yeah. owls in Twin Peaks. They're really cool. And it's like, oh, owls are cool, man. And there, mm-hmm. I know the... Um, Native American Indians have a whole um, sort of myth and whatnot about the owls. So, yeah, I mean, they're, I always found them fascinating. I can't say I've ever had any experiences, you know, spiritual experiences with owls. No, I just, I, I, for some reason, owls popped into my head. I'm looking at you. I'm like, owls. I don't know why. But, but, but (laughs) there's, But there's, yeah, there is uh, definitely a, con- a spiritual connection to owls and whatnot. That was just a very random thing. So, Vinny, we're cutting this out when you're editing this. That was just <laughs> a, a rando Pete thing to do. But uh, I guess to kind of wrap this up, I, I, I've asked you everything I wanted to ask you, but uh, what would you like to tell everyone else uh, outside of just read the book? <laughs> Um, about me or just anything? Uh, what, what if if you were to be tasked with like someone were to ask you like a, a piece of wisdom, something, some parting wisdom that you can impart upon people to kind of make their lives a more full and beautiful thing? What would that be? 
pretty much how I've lived my life for this whole time. Always follow your instincts, always follow your intuition. The instincts are the animal nature, which is tapped into the world that we live around us, uh, that we live in all around us. And the intuition is something higher. So you follow both, um, you know, Alistair Crowley um, had written, and I believe um, his later incarnation, James Beck, had written, you know, it's the combination of God and beast. It's very important. Boyd Rice put out a record, which has always been my favorite, God and Beast. I mean, something about that whole combination, Nietzsche writes about it in a couple of passages, I think, in Will the Power. Um, always follow your animal instincts and your higher intuition. Put them together as God and Beast and um, follow what you know to be true with those two things, and you'll probably turn out all right. No matter what kind of shit you might put yourself through. <laughs> Listen, this has been a blast. I uh, absolutely. I, I got I got more than I thought I would, and that's wonderful. And right. uh, listen, the next book comes down the pike. I'd love to talk to you again if you'd come on. Absolutely, you know it. Awesome, brother. It was a pleasure to meet you, Vag. Absolutely. Oh, one more thing. Yeah. Um, is it okay if I take your uh, your great uh, review on Amazon and put it up on my Facebook page? And please, I'll, I'll plug the podcast and tell that. This is going to be coming up within the next few weeks, but uh, you know, I'll plug the podcast and that that review is fantastic. Thank you. I'm glad you appreciated it. That was I very, really did. It was very in the moment and honest. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I I read it in very very quick succession. Uh, your your writing style is very matter of fact, but there's an art to it because it's not. Uh, it's from, I, I went to I have an English degree. Um, uh, that that was my always my love. I'd always wanted to be a writer. I always was a writer. I just had it in my head that I had to go to school to be one. Which right? Was yeah. Bullshit. I, I could. Yeah. I could. I could have just dropped out and done it. Henry Rollins taught me that that's not the case. I mean, fucking Rollins could do it. Anyone could do it. Right. But you know, when when you'd mentioned it to me, I was like, no one reviewed it yet. Okay. <laughs> Boom. <laughs> two minutes 15 seconds maybe oh that's Boom. perfect and, and well you know i i um just to wrap up to uh you know writing the first book my life with the dwarves on for anyone that doesn't know here they are mm -hmm. go buy them you gotta pay <laughs> for them um my life with the dwarves was written pretty rapidly and just all in one shot pretty much and there's some things i took out iris berry from pirate hostage press was helping me and did the layout, an amazing layout job she did. Uh, came out pretty easy. This book, I wrote it, and I started typing it in, and just something wasn't right. It was just, there wasn't that energy. There wasn't that, I don't know, reaching. There wasn't that acceleration. There was, it wasn't accelerating. I had to rewrite the whole fucking thing. Jesus. Yeah. I had to, yeah. I mean, I know it's only, what, 123 pages or what have you, but, you know, I just read through it and went, this just isn't right. I got to do this over. I got to do this over. And then I just got in the right mindset and I just sort of simplified everything. And, and I tried to speak more like I would if I was just speaking to somebody about telling, you know, telling these stories. And then, you know, it just all sort of came out. And then that's what you got. And I, I definitely wanted it to be like the first book, sort of an acceleration, like you, like a dwarf show. You pick it up right off the bat, you're getting beer spit on you. Right off the bat, there's going to be maybe a guitar swung at your face. 
you know, you know, and then at the end, somebody's going to jump off their uh, through the drums off the stage and maybe put their penis on your neck. And then there's nothing but feedback and wrecked shit all over. I mean, so I had to have that acceleration for, to me, that was really important. And uh, so now I, you know, I've just got to figure out how the hell I'm going to do the last one and see if I can get it to be just as interesting. I, I think that's only inevitable at this point. I mean, I, I hope so. You, you never know. I mean, it's, <laughs> you as a writer, you must know, you know, you just never know. It's like either it comes or it doesn't. Right. Uh, I, as long as you let it happen to you. Yeah. 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 That's you have it beaten, but it, the first, these last two books, which are the first two of the trilogy have been one hell of a ride. And, you know, the lack of verbosity was, I think, the most refreshing part, just to, because you're not spinning a web, you're not telling a tale. It's it's not fiction. This is this is as it happened. This is matter of fact, uh, a journalist unto your own life. As and, a, and that's sort of why there it was true. It was too verbose when I first wrote the second one. It really was, and I just had to dumb it down. I don't know if dumbing it down is the right way to put it, but I just had to simplify and accelerate. So. I had to rewrite the whole damn thing. And I'm actually, you know, other than some problems with the layout, you know, I'm pretty happy with it. And and all that comes down to is people, you have to open it up a little bit more than you would a normal paperback. Just right, right. Pry it yeah. open a little bit more and you're fine. A little bit more. You'll be fine. It's kids love it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure some kids out there with some of the scenes in these books, they'll certainly be leaving a little stain. Sure, but you know, uh, at, at this point in society, you have seen worse on oh, yeah. Instagram. You know, you've, oh, you've oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's it, this is just one human being experiencing life in a in a way that many haven't. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. Or and also in a way that many have too, because you know, I, I did write this for those people who did struggle with drug and alcohol addiction, and you know, I hope this helps them out. It did. It did. And, you know, to just that recognition of, of a, a counterpart in, in that life's journey is always, you know, it, it it's to know that other people know that path and have gotten mm -hmm. past it is always a comfort. Oh, yeah. No, it really is. Yeah, no, it's it's been a hell of a path, but <laughs> I have to thank the people at New Perceptions in Northridge, California, you know, the rehab I went to. Uh, specifically Stanley Wilson, who, um, you know, he passed away in the last year or so, but, uh, just an amazing guy. I mean, he was just the soul of new perceptions and, uh, and, uh, you know, just him telling us those stories I relate in the book, you know, about he and his buddies getting a bunch of crack and a bunch of AK 47s and kicking in the bank door and jumping up on the counter and, Oh, you rich white motherfuckers going to give me your money. I'm going to blow you all away. <laughs> like that's what kind of landed him in jail and eventually got him to go down the sober path. And people like that, you know, his stories, he didn't write books, but man, he was talking to people one-on-one -on -one at New Perceptions every single day and huge inspiration for me. It's an incredible, it's an incredible life lesson and journey for people to behold whether you've been down that path or not but let's face it in this day and age most people have been touched by it yeah oh which, yes yeah. which which makes it prescient yeah absolutely yeah i mean there yeah there's 
Yeah, the drugs and alcohol, you know, it started pretty much in the 60s, I guess, maybe a little bit in the 50s, but, you know, it's it's certainly increased among our youth. But that's just for our civilization. I mean, there's been drugs and, and all sorts of things in, in every single civilization, but this particular one, which with which has almost no spiritual faculty to it whatsoever, where everything is just so consumerist materialism, um, I think Nicholas Schreck calls it hyper-commercialism, hyper-capitalism. Mm -hmm. Uh, that describes it perfectly because it really there is something hyper about it and there's just no there there there's no real soul there's no spirituality and so people are just spinning out of control amongst all this shit so uh you know if you spin out of control and and you can take a break and find a foothold you know there's a, a lot of things from the ancient past and the not so ancient past that can help you out you know people have been utilizing religion and spirituality ever since day one so do it absolutely and on that note i will bid you good evening thank you so much for all of the wisdom and beautiful words my friend sure well thank you very much and i really appreciate it thanks a lot peter we'll talk to you soon absolutely